chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one next to you out of somebody's lap. (laughs) In love. And say, can we please share? Luke chapter 4. If you are visiting, we are studying all the way through the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter and verse by verse, section at a time, and we find ourselves in chapter 4, verse 31 this morning. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, so please follow along as we do that. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at His teaching, for His word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that this is your word and we've read it publicly and we desire now, Lord, to understand it more clearly. We can't ever, Lord, in any one sitting know everything there is to know about your love as it's revealed to us through these words, but we can move closer to it, Lord. We can feel and sense your intimate presence in this place as you speak to our hearts and we pray for that this morning. May we have clarity of speech and clarity of hearing, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. When Jesus spoke, people were astonished and amazed. You are twice told that this was because his word was with authority. Jesus delivered the word of God with authority, and it was then demonstrated by God to have authority as demons shuddered and diseases ceased. God's word should astonish and amaze every time you encounter it. Whether it is heard publicly or read privately, it is delivered by God as a demonstration of His authority. If you are not astonished and amazed, could be the preacher, (laughs) but even poor preaching can minister to you if it is based upon God's Word and if the Word is at least read. Maybe we need to reacquaint ourselves with the authority of God's Word. Maybe we need to realize that it is not someone talking about God, it is God talking, talking to each one of us personally and individually by His Spirit. How can you reacquaint yourself with the authority in God's Word? 
Our text suggests at least two ways. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, learn to respect the authority of God's word. And number two, live to reveal the authority of God's word. Let's take a look first of all in verses 31 through 36 where you learn to respect the authority of God's word. Demons shuddered and diseases ceased. A little later in Luke's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to read, Then Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Later still in his ministry, Jesus would expand this to include all his future followers. In John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. The question that always comes is, why don't we see this happening today? Why don't we see demons shudder? Why don't we see diseases cease? Well, the first thing to notice, I think, is that Jesus did not emphasize exorcisms and healings. He was simply teaching each Sabbath in the synagogue. The second thing to notice is that even in his teaching, he was not emphasizing exorcisms and healings. He was preaching about the kingdom of God. I'm not here to make excuses for weak preaching or to suggest to you that God no longer heals or to downplay the reality of demons and demonic possession. But I am telling you that the example Jesus set for us was to deliver God's word with authority and then trust in Him for the demonstration of its authority. Whenever we begin to seek the demonstration of the word as a goal, then we have overturned God's method and we only always come to disaster. Now, let me give you two more things to bear in mind because I think this is a significant question. You see Jesus healing and casting out demons, and and all of you should be thinking, well, what's happening today? And so two more things to bear in mind. First of all, the demonstration of the word with power over demons and disease was sometimes hindered by unbelief. In his own hometown of Nazareth, Jesus, we're told, could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. And so this same Jesus on the earth was hindered in performing miracles because of the unbelief of the people. But secondly, even when there are many and mighty demonstrations of power over demons and disease, people can remain unmoved. They can remain unbelievers. Jesus did tremendous things here in Capernaum, but later he would rebuke the people of Capernaum for failing to believe in him for salvation despite the many miracles. He would say in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented if they had seen the mighty works that he had done, and yet they did not. And so you know what? It's just not true that if miracles were happening left and right and demons were screaming in church and diseases were ceasing, that people would be getting saved. It's just not true. It'd be a blast, but it's just not true. And so we want to keep these things in a proper biblical perspective. No excuses. Instead, I want you to be encouraged. With or without the deliverance from demons and disease, you can be astonished and amazed by God's Word as you learn to respect its authority, and trust Him for its demonstration. Verse 31 says, Then He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at His teaching, for His word was with authority. 
We learned in verse 16, it was Jesus' custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In Capernaum, he was, we're told, teaching on the Sabbath, so week after week he had been teaching them. And then in verse 44, you read, he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Luke went to great lengths to emphasize the importance Jesus placed upon teaching God's Word. Everything that happened surrounded the teaching. He was teaching in Nazareth. He was teaching in Capernaum. He went to teach in Galilee week after week. And of course, as we go through the gospel, teaching during the week as well. And the things that happened happened around the teaching. If people are to learn to respect the authority of God's Word, then we must, first of all, teach it respectfully. Let me suggest just a few simple things. First of all, obviously, the Bible should be read publicly. Now, I know you're going to be thinking, man, this is so simple. I should be in Sunday school teaching this. But there more and more is a postmodern movement that has determined that for some reason the reading and teaching of God's Word is, uh, is passe, it's gone, it's not reaching a generation. And so they're doing all kinds of really weird stuff to engage people in worship using multimedia and multisensory and all this kind. Of, I mean, it's really just weird stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, lights flashing and all kinds of, you know, it's more like a drug trip than it is... Uh, you know, now, I'm all for modern things and for being progressive, but uh, the Bible should be read publicly. And so we always want to respect God's Word by reading it. And then secondly, the Bible should be presented systematically. You know, a lot of people live their entire Christian life going to church, never really learning much about the Bible, not because it's not taught but because it's not taught systematically. You don't get a feel for the fact that from Genesis to Revelation, it is one story, God's unfolding drama of redemption, growing in, its, in your understanding of the Savior, Jesus Christ, His mission and work and all of that. And so uh, the best way really to teach God's Word is to get a book uh, you know, like the book of Luke and to start at the beginning and work your way through to the end and teach in a very systematic way. And then the Bible should be taught so that everyone can understand it. Now, this is harder than you think, not because it's so lofty, but because we want to appear sometimes as Bible teachers as if we're intelligent. I have none of those problems, of course, but H.A. Ironside, Harry Ironside, he's home with the Lord now. He's one of my favorite Bible commentators, very uh, powerful and yet simple in his presentation of the Word. And uh, I was reading a story about H.A. Ironside, and after teaching a message one night, uh, a gentleman came up to him, probably thinking he would encourage him the way people do to me. But anyway, they came up and he said, uh, he said, you know, Dr. Ironside, I can tell you're not a very good preacher. And of course, Ironside, you know, he, he wasn't really taken back by it. He was curious more than anything else. And he says, well, tell me, sir, how can you tell that I'm not a very good preacher? And the man said, because I could understand everything you said. <laughs> now, don't you, don't you get that impression from people at work or at school or someplace? Don't you think that if somebody, if you can't quite understand them, don't you first think, wow, this guy's brilliant. This guy is so smart, he can't even tell me what he's thinking. 
I mean, wow, I will never be in the league of this guy, you know. And, and now, sadly, I've heard that about Bible teachers before. Say, so, hey, what, you know, what's it like? Oh, man, the guy is brilliant. I, I can't follow him at all. He's so, man, the guy is so brilliant. I go, well, what do you get out of it? He goes, not much, but man, is that guy smart. The Bible should be taught so that everyone can understand it. And there should be an effort to minimize distractions, I believe, while it's being taught. Ooh, a hush ran through the crowd. You know, sometimes uh, we, we do catch a lot of flack at Calvary and at churches like Calvary that place a, a real emphasis on teaching God's Word because we try the best we can to minimize distractions. Uh, we're not crazy about it. I, I know some guys, some friends of mine who are pastors who are just crazy about distractions. I mean, just what you're doing right now is distracting, you know, and they'd be telling you, pointing you out, hey, you, you can't scratch your nose during the service. Ushers. There's a nose scratcher in <laughs> chair 5B, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, I mean, it's insane. Some of you have been to churches like that where people are just touchy. But there's another end of the spectrum. I mean, there are distractions. I mean, we don't have the big sign in the foyer that hits you on the head that said, no cell phones. But you ought to know better than to have your cell phone on, right? I'm going to make fun of you if it comes on. So every people are going like this right now. <laughs> Now, let me just say this. I don't want to get into all the possible scenarios, but listen, we respect the Word of God, and we believe that when you minimize the opportunity for distractions, you are showing respect for God's Word so that it can be taught so that all can understand systematically as it's read publicly. And those are just a few things. We could suggest many others. These points have corresponding responsibilities from those who listen. First of all, it's a good idea to bring your Bible to church. Now, I don't want to criticize any churches that don't practice this, but I just think it's wrong to not carry your Bible. You should have a Bible. It should be your Bible, and, and you should even break through with the freedom to write in it. It's not the original manuscript, you realize that. <laughs> it's not ever going to be valuable on eBay, you know. Hey, I've got a 1979 Holman here. Uh, it's not going to be like that. Uh, you know, I mean, if this was, if you had in your possession the papyrus that Paul the Apostle signed, that would be one thing. And by the way, I think that's why we don't have any of these original manuscripts, because we'd worship them, or some people would anyway, rather, I know where their church is, but I'm not going to tell you. Anyway, they would, and we wouldn't read God's Word, we would worship it, it'd be in a museum. But so get a Bible and write in your Bible and, and bring it, read it, read it while it is being read and studied. Let me give you a secret. If you bring your Bible... No one knows, really, if you're following the message or reading your devotion that morning. And so when the message gets boring, you can just kind of flip over quickly and do your own Bible reading. But at least you've got the Word of God, and you can read it. People first service thought that was funny, but you obviously think <laughs> something way different. So I actually got first service to laugh a little bit. I had to stand on my head while I was saying that, but... Another thing you could do, if we're, since we're teaching the Bible systematically, is you could show respect by reading ahead and being prepared for the lesson. You already know that next week we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, Lord willing. And so you can read that. And you can read it during the week a few times and kind of get prepared for it. And I believe that if you would start doing that, you know, a lot of times people say, well, God never speaks to me. Well, give him a chance. Start reading ahead. 
And when, you know, the time comes, he'll be speaking to you during the week and then reinforcing it on Sunday. And then you can, of course, help to minimize distractions, both for your own sake but for others as well. And and a lot of times I don't think we think about the other person. A lot of people are, hey, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to bring these people into church and we should all be able to sit together or sit wherever we want or do whatever we want. You know, occasionally we have an altar call and, and it's a very serious time. I'm not saying that God can't overcome obstacles and distractions, but do you really want to be the source of somebody who's, you know, really struggling with coming to Christ and the Lord is working in his heart and life or her heart and life at that moment and then it's your baby that, you know, has projectile vomit on the usher? <laughs> do you really want that to be going on? No, of course not. Think about other people and, and you'll minimize distractions. Now, you can't eliminate all distractions because sometimes the devil comes to church, like he did in verse 33. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and his cell phone went off. No, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Just, I don't know where that came from. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, now I was going to do my demon voice, but I don't want to scare you, so let's just, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons are the fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion against God. They can possess a person to take over his or her faculties. This one came to confront Jesus. He spoke on behalf, it seems, of all his demon buddies uh, using the plural us. Have you come to destroy us? And so I don't know, know, maybe it was they all got together and he was junior demon or something and they said, hey, you go talk to Jesus and figure out what's going on. Demons recognize Jesus and his power and deity uh, and they wonder what he is up to. You know, they're not stupid and they know that things don't look good at the end of the book of Revelation. And so they're kind of wondering what Jesus is up to. Unbelievers can be demon-possessed. More often, Satan is pleased to simply hold them captive without their ever knowing it. 1 Timothy 2.26 describes all unbelievers as taken captive by the devil at his will. Now, they're not possessed. There's no obvious activity of Satan in their lives. They're not having weird dreams. You know, their heads aren't spinning around in the morning and stuff like that. The Exorcist, you're familiar with that movie? (laughs) How many of you have seen The Exorcist? Raise your hand. Okay, God bless you. I saw it before I was a Christian, by the way. And so, you know, if they're not possessed, they're really kind of left alone by the devil. By the, if you're possessed, someone might notice you, and they might want to do something about it, might want to bring you to the Lord. If you're held captive but don't really acknowledge it, then you're just going merrily on your way to hell. And so I don't think there's as much demonic possession as sometimes people would like us to believe. It's not really a good strategy. It's something that demons seem to do from time to time and more in some places than others, and I don't have an answer for all that, but it's really not good spiritual strategy in the warfare. And if you want an expansion on this, you should pick up C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Screwtape Letters where uh, it's a fictional story where a a senior demon talks to a junior demon about how to keep somebody happily on their way to hell. Christians cannot be demon-possessed. 
Uh, I've had Christians tell me that they were demon-possessed, and I just say that's not true. I don't care what you say because the Word of God says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And in your heart, if it's the dwelling place of God the Holy Spirit, it's not a condominium. You don't have the devil on the top floor, you know. I've got a neighbor I've got to get rid of, you know. Oh, it's the devil. You know, it, it just, it's not possible for Christians to be demon-possessed. Jesus practiced what I'd like to call easy exorcism. Verse 35, he rebuked him by saying, be quiet and come out of him. And I don't even think he shouted. You know, we get this idea that Jesus, pro- you know, because we're thinking spiritual warfare and, you know, and stuff and all, we get all these weird voices going and stuff. I think Jesus just said, hey, be quiet, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. I do see that Hollywood is coming out with a new exorcist movie, so some of you will be happy about that. It will be about two hours long, and I'm guessing it will be filled with chanting and incense and religious icons. Jesus' easy exorcism lasted just a few seconds. It was like a, a brief interruption in his service. And again, we have this idea that an exorcism is some big mumbo-jumbo thing that takes place. Uh, Not so. That was the kind of exorcism the Jews were used to, but Jesus came with a whole new power. Uh, And you see this followed through with His disciples in the New Testament. They simply went about casting out demons. Verse 36, they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, what a word is this? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. They had already acknowledged Jesus' authority. Now it was further demonstrated. The exorcism was like an audiovisual presentation. It was Jesus' version of PowerPoint that morning, only real power pointing to him. It was a sign. It was a wonder, which God the Father determined should follow his son's teaching, Signs and wonders follow the teaching of God's Word, and they are always at the Father's discretion, not ours. Now, I only tell you that because every few years, a movement sweeps through the church where people are just plain disappointed that they don't see more healings and more exorcisms. And and they always, always come to the conclusion that there's too much teaching of God's Word and not enough emphasis on the miraculous. This is always the conclusion. They don't always say it that way, but that's what they're really meaning. We're just teaching the Word too much. We're denying the supernatural. And so let's, let's quit teaching as much and let's start focusing on how we can learn to cast out these demons and to heal people and those sorts of things. Uh, and it's very sad because it's not biblical. Now, I'd be all into that if that's what the Bible was teaching, but Jesus just went about teaching, and then God had the signs and wonders follow. As far as I know, we've not had to contend with demon-possessed folks publicly at church. I think a few have visited, but they've kept quiet. You might be here today. I don't know, but we have to and do deal with those held captive by Satan. Every time someone responds to the invitation to receive Christ, it is a demonstration of kingdom power. It's a miracle of eternal proportions. Our responsibility is to learn more and more to respect God's authority and to both deliver and receive His Word with the respect it deserves. And then God will do as He wills in demonstration of its power. 
Now, secondly, you live to reveal the authority of God's Word. That's what we learn in verse 36 through 44. The lesson that day in the synagogue was for living outside of the synagogue. These next verses show you two ways to live outside the church to reveal the authority of God's Word. First, you just announce its authority. Verse 37, and the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, the report wasn't in the newspaper or on television. It was obviously word of mouth. It was person to person. It was people telling one another about Jesus. They went announcing what they had heard and seen. You know, this is the way it has always been the way it always will be. Despite the media and all the things that are available to us, which can be used for God's good and uh, His glory, what the gospel always comes down to is you and I just talking to other people who surround us. I've told you many times these big evangelistic events, Billy Graham Crusades, Franklin Graham Crusades, Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusades, whoever's having a crusade, All of them will tell you the same thing. They're going to fail if believers don't invite their unsaved family and friends. They do advertising. They have banners and bumper stickers and all of those things. But mostly that's to alert Christians that there's an opportunity coming to bring the unsaved so that they can hear the gospel. Some really huge percentage of people who attend those crusades come because they were invited by a Christian. And so, regardless that we use the media and all of these things, never think that the gospel is anything different than you sharing with somebody else what Jesus has done in your life. And so, they went about announcing what they had seen and heard. It was customary after synagogue service to have the Sabbath meal around noon. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Come to church and then go have a meal. Jesus was invited to the home of Simon's to eat that afternoon. And so in verse 38, he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Simon is another name for Peter. And uh, we'll see next week, Lord willing, if you're here, uh, that uh, Simon begins to be called Peter, and then he'll be called Peter throughout the rest of the gospel. His mother-in-law suffered from a high fever, and, and it's a technical term that Luke is using, who was a physician. It was a, a very serious fever, and it may have even been a chronic condition in her life. Those are the kinds of words that Luke chooses. When requested, Jesus rebuked the fever. Now, some people try to compare this to his rebuking the demon, saying that all disease is therefore the result of demons, but that's just not true. The same wording is used to indicate that Jesus has the same authority in the realm of diseases as he does in the realm of demons. Whether it is the natural or the supernatural, Jesus has authority to power and power to act. What we do learn here about Jesus' authority is that you have to arise to reveal it. You get up and serve others. That's really the point of this story, not so much the healing, but that the mother-in-law got up immediately and went about her business. It is through your serving in the power of Jesus that His authority is revealed to others. little sidelight here, too, on healing. 
I do believe in divine healing. There are gifts of healing, the Bible says, in the New Testament. Not a problem, so, so don't get me wrong. However, a lot of times people have told me about healing services that they go to. And I've, I've watched some of them. I'm thinking of one in particular, famous televangelist who's having a healing service. And this young man, they brought him up there with many handicaps, and one of them was that he was deaf. Now, he had a hearing aid, so he couldn't be completely deaf, but I'm going with that. You know, he's deaf. And so these guys are doing their thing and laying their hands on him and, and trying to heal him and, uh, you know, Finally, they say, can you hear? And, and he's sitting there, and they say, can you hear? And I'm not saying this to be funny, but I, I have to do this. They said, can you hear? And he goes, I can hear. Well, he couldn't talk, but he could hear, I guess. And he didn't really get out of his wheelchair. And they were so excited that he could hear. You know, when Jesus healed somebody, they were healed. They got up. It was like they were never sick. It, it, there weren't partial healings. It wasn't like, you know, how you feeling? They were just ready to go. And so, man, I would love it if you could go someplace and just be healed. There's a lot of people who are sick right now in our fellowship, and it breaks our hearts. We believe in healing. We're praying for healing. But that's God's will. It's God's sovereign will. And we're waiting for Him upon that. And so don't, don't get drawn off into these things. Announce and arise. It is the response of those who respect Jesus' authority. It's how they reveal him to others. You see it again as the sun was setting in verses 40 and 41. It says, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, why did they wait until the sun was setting? Well, the common interpretation of the Sabbath laws was that you could neither heal nor carry a burden on the Sabbath day. If someone got hurt, you could prevent them from death or from getting any worse, but it was considered work if you helped them or healed them. And so, God forbid you get hurt on the Sabbath day. You just had to be kind of in a state of stasis. Oh, you're bleeding? Uh, okay, we'll stop the bleeding, but we can't do anything to sew you up. He's going to have to lay there with pressure on your wound until tomorrow. This is weird. And then many of these who were brought undoubtedly had to be carried because of their infirmity, and it was a burden, to considered a burden or work to carry someone on the Sabbath. And so how sad that here's Jesus in the midst of the people. They know that he can heal. They know that he can cast out demons, and they have to wait until the sun goes down before they can act. It's, you know, religion is a terrible thing when it becomes an obstacle rather than an opportunity to bring people spiritual healing and health. Any teaching, any religion, any denomination, any group of people that puts any obstacle between you and the Lord, don't fall for that. It's weird. Now, why did the demons come? Well, they're strange. You'd have to ask them. I don't know. Probably many of those who were demon-possessed were brought by caring family and friends. And they came and they announced who Jesus was, and Jesus rebuked them. Now, why? You'd think this would be great. Well, 
I don't know that it's such a good idea to be announced by demons. I mean, think about it for a minute. Uh, uh, first of all, you're the son of God and, 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 you know, the Lord of glory, and do you really want demons announcing that you're on the scene? Is that your advanced PR? You probably don't want that. And secondly, it wasn't time for Jesus to really reveal himself fully. And so he rebuked them, and they kept quiet. The laying on of hands was something new. It was not really a Jewish practice at all. It had a twofold effect. First, it represented to onlookers that power was flowing through the Lord from his Father in heaven. When Jesus left the earth promising we would do greater works, he wanted us to know that it was the Father working through us, not anything in and of ourselves. You don't have the power to heal anybody, but God does, and he might use you sometime. Uh, second, the laying on of hands showed a tenderness and a personal caring to touch those who were so sick, many of them from extremely communicable diseases. How many of you would touch somebody without gloving up today? You know, in my ministry as a chaplain, uh, we're always putting gloves on. You know, you go out to a scene, there's just weird stuff going on, and I look around and all the officers and the ambulance crew and everybody's got gloves, and I'm like, hey, uh, have some gloves. Finally, I got my own, you know. Now I just glove up in the morning. I'm just walking around. No, but I mean, that's, that's the standard thing, gloves and masks and all this. Jesus, these people were coming disease after disease. They didn't even know what was wrong with half of these people. And he was touching them. This was radical. Jesus used many methods to heal, by the way. He was teaching us that healing comes from heaven. It can't be manufactured by technique or learned through practice. He didn't always lay hands on people. Jesus could heal you from a distance. He could speak the word and you would be healed. And, and it, it's wrong for us to try and discover a method of healing. And yet, even saying that, I know people, friends of mine in the past, who've gone to healing seminars to learn how to heal various diseases. And one of the classes is how to hold your hands. And there's a certain way to hold your hands when you're healing somebody with back trouble, and it's something like this. I'm serious. Only not with the paperclip or you'll short out. <laughs> Tried that one time. No. And so we want to be really careful with technique. And when people start talking to you about technique, step back, run away. It's just not from the Lord. Notwithstanding, we, we do lay hands on people. It still shows the love of God, a tender caring. Uh, I've been in situations and meetings where maybe you're in a room or something, people are praying, and they'll start praying for somebody, and somebody over the side, who he'll, they'll put their hand out. And, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that, as long as you don't really think you're doing anything. I mean, it's just, if it's from the heart and you think, Lord, I just want to extend your love to, you know, Gene over there or whatever and stuff, but we, we don't want to get into these postures as if your posture had anything to do with healing him. One thing they never do is they never make spitballs and put them on people. But Jesus did that once too. There was a guy blind and Jesus got some mud and spit in it and put it on his eyes. That's one seminar that you never get at these things. And so just be careful. Announce and arise, arise and announce. What could be simpler? Yet nothing is so profound really as your testimony of what Jesus has done for you and can do for others. Verse 42, now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. The crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. 
But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. We can certainly understand the people wanting Jesus to remain. He would be a great preventive measure in case diseases or demons troubled them again in the future. But Jesus is always more than a preventive measure for us who have experienced His touch. We know that others need to experience Him as well. We don't. Do you really want to keep Jesus to yourself? And so we need to be careful sometimes as individual Christians, as a church body. What are we doing to present Jesus to other people that we know personally or that our church comes into contact with? You know, sometimes people say, and, and it can be valid, don't get me wrong, but a lot of times people say, hey, what are you doing going to Peru when there are needs right here? Okay, what are those needs? I don't know. Okay, then we're going to go to Peru until you tell me what some of those needs are. Or they'll say, well, here's some things. I go, oh, fantastic. No one else has seen that. Why don't you go and meet those needs? Oh, no. No way. And, and so, do you understand what I'm saying? We want, Jesus isn't just a preventive to keep to ourselves. We want to reach out beyond the walls of the church, beyond the walls of our house, wherever God would open the door. And He opens doors. You know, if there's one thing I know about the Lord is that He does things in an odd way, in ways that we wouldn't determine. He starts churches in places that make no sense, like Hanford, or uh, you know, he has churches involved here on the other side of the world and different things, and, and we're just following the leading of God, and it's a good thing. Jesus was also practicing the principles he was teaching them. He, too, must arise and go about announcing to others. The kingdom of God was his announcement. That can be understood in at least three ways. Number one, it has a past meaning because God has always been overruling the universe Secondly, it has a prophetic meaning because the Bible promises a literal ruling of God on the earth. And third, it always has a present meaning as believers submit to the lordship of Jesus over and in their lives. Verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Now, Luke, remember, was a physician, and you'd expect Luke, if anyone, to say Jesus was healing the sick, Jesus was exorcising demons. But no, he doesn't say that. He was preaching in the synagogues, and these other things occurred. He wanted the people to learn respect for the Word of God as their authority and to live to reveal it as their authority. Any healings or exorcisms, any signs and wonders, they were the PowerPoint presentations to emphasize the importance of God's Word. We're not just talking about God. God is talking. He takes His Word as it is read, and He speaks to you personally and individually by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, then God has been talking to you this morning. He's told you already that you have been taken captive by the devil. You're probably not possessed, but you are oppressed, and you need to be released. Those of you who know the Lord, your Father is encouraging you to have a renewed respect for His Word. It should astonish you and amaze you every time you read it, every time you hear it read. And you know it will when you remember your first love for Jesus Christ because it takes His Word out of the realm of dry intellectualism and it makes it an intimate communication from His heart to your heart. 
God, who is the creator of the universe, wants to have a personal relationship with you, wants to tell you in so many ways that he loves you through words, through symbols, through illustrations, through narratives, through stories, through poetry. God is romantic, and he can't wait to meet with you and to share his love with you. And that's an astonishing thing. That's an amazing thing. And once all that takes place, then you simply arise from your place and announce this to others whenever and wherever God gives you the opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we're great, uh, gracious hearers of your word, Lord, this morning. As you've delivered it to us, we appreciate it so much. I pray that you would demonstrate its power in our lives and that we would recognize that demonstration. Maybe it would be a healing, Lord. Maybe there would be uh, some demonic obstacle or presence removed. Maybe it would be something that we would put in the category of being smaller than that, but no less miraculous. I believe that if we're sensitive, Lord, to you, we can see demonstrations of your power in the small things that seem insignificant, yet you order and bring together. Lord, some of the circumstances that seem to be happenstance that that work together just at the right time and just at the right moment. If we could only see all that it took for you to bring that moment to bear so that we could, if we were sensitive to it, know that you loved us and that you were caring for us, that you foresaw what we were going through or going to go through and you tried to prepare us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd rather than have us leave here discouraged that a demon wasn't cast out, that a disease wasn't healed, encourage, Lord, that you are working in miraculous ways in our hearts and in our lives. And should you choose to do any of those things or anything, that we would be open to it, receptive to it, not like the people of Nazareth in our unbelief, but neither like the people of Capernaum, Lord, who took it for granted and who saw many mighty and miraculous things but remained unchanged. And Lord, I guess what I'm saying is that we would just return to our first love, remember how sweet it was, and return that love to you. Lord, if there are any here that are not believers, that you would work in their heart this day, they would come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, we pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we're uh, ending our service. And as it's over, we'll have some of our deacons up front, as always, to pray with you and to pray for you. Uh, Maybe there's some need in your life this morning. Maybe you desire to be healed physically to be prayed for, for some situation in your life. Come on down so we can pray with you and for you. Uh, What a blessing. Maybe you're here and you're not a believer. You're not a Christian and you know it. Come and, and let them pray for you that you might receive the Lord. God loves you and he cares for you in a great way. Those of you who are staying for the baptism, just hang out here. Uh, We'll be probably around 11.45. We'll get started. We've got to change and have a little orientation. 
and then once it begins, we'll just go straight through. And all of you are welcome to stay and uh, come and go as you please, perhaps even and witness it. It's, you know, if you were being baptized, you'd want some people to hang around and and uh, witness that. And so, so be a good Christian this morning in that sense. Be a good brother. Be a good sister, and uh, encourage the folks. God loves you. May God bless you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Sing, I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you. Sing, I'm in love with you. I am in love with you. And I am in love with you. And I am in love with you, Jesus. I am in love with you. Forever my heart will sing of you. Forever my heart will sing of you. I will praise you. All my days, forever I'll sing of you. Forever my life will follow you. Forever my life will follow you. I will walk in all your ways. Forever I'll follow you. You give a love. None can measure You bring your joy to my thirsty soul You offer a life that lasts forever You give a grace like none I know I am in love with you I am in love with you I am in love with you Lord, I am in love with you. Sing, you give a love. You give a love that none can measure. You bring your joy to my thirsty soul. You offer a life that lasts forever. You give a grace like none I know. And I am in love with you. And I am in love with you. And I am in love with you. I am in love with you. Sing, I'm in love. I am in love with you. I am in love with you. I am in love with you, Jesus. I am in love with you. Amen. God bless.